Hello, everyone. I'm Felicia Shakiba, and you're listening to the CPO Playbook Podcast. Join me and my guests as we feature insightful conversations with HR leaders, people scientists, and executives from diverse industries and functions, offering valuable perspectives on the future of work. Discover a unique outlook on navigating the complexities of the modern-day working world, exploring innovative strategies in talent management and corporate culture from the chief people officer's perspective. Tune in to stay ahead of the game when it comes to all things people-related. In the realm of diversity, equity, and inclusion, a thought-provoking survey conducted by WebMD has unearthed a disconcerting reality. Astonishingly, 89% of participants find themselves employed by organizations boasting DEI programs, yet a disheartening 62% harbor profound doubts regarding the efficacy of these initiatives, with a staggering 46% expressing personal disappointment. Forbes suggests that this disillusionment may be attributed to a lack of unwavering commitment from upper echelons of management, coupled with a perfunctory checkbox approach that undermines the true potential of DEI and B endeavors. Increasingly, the scholarly work of Josh Burson elucidates the significant advantages of diversity, revealing that diverse companies enjoy 2.3 times higher cash flow per employee, while Gartner's research establishes that inclusive teams can enhance performance by a remarkable 30%. The imperative to efficiently communicate DAI initiatives from top leadership becomes unmistakably apparent as it resides at the very epicenter of cultural transformation, possessing the power to either fortify or fracture the success of these programs. Nonetheless, the challenge before us looms large How can leaders deftly disseminate these critical messages throughout the organization, effectuating meaningful change in the process? With us today is Dr. Greg Pennington, a managing partner at Penpoint Consulting Group, former VP of HR and senior leadership development at Johnson Controls, and author of Your Leadership Signature, Mapping Your Personal Pursuit of Influence and Impact. He holds a PhD from University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and a bachelor's cum laude from Harvard University. Greg, thank you so much for being here. Welcome. Thank you very much, Felicia. I'm excited about having a chance to spend some time with you. What are some common factors or reasons that contribute to the lack of commitment from upper management when it comes to implementing effective DEI initiatives? I mean, it's a great question. And I think part of the context for me is to put DEI initiatives in the same bucket as organizational change. So when you think about an individual and a team and an organization's probably predictable resistance to change, we shouldn't necessarily think of DEI as unusual. The more and more emotion you put into a plan change, the more likely you can get the positives and the negatives. If I'm really emotionally engaged, then I'm probably going to stick with it even more when I run into some obstacles. And if I'm emotionally engaged in the sense of, yeah, this is going to cost me something, then I've got my own reasons why I'm not quite sure I want to make this change. So, so I would start off by saying, Let's appreciate that everything we learned about managing change and leading change and resistance to change 
he is at least a piece of answering the question about what gets in the way of organizations and leaders in particular having what we might consider full commitment to the DEI. There's this emotional piece about diversity, equity, and inclusion that probably exaggerates all those fundamental things we know about. Why do I want to change? And will I actually be able to pull this off? So that's what I would start with. And you've been working with many leaders in your time. So could you share some practical strategies or examples of effective communication and messaging from top leadership to drive meaningful change in DEI efforts? Well, two quick examples come to mind. I remember talking to this audience of senior regional managers, and it was all on this umbrella of the organization, financial institution at the time. And so I was brought in to try to add this rational, logical pitch to this group of 100 top leaders. And I saw in the corner of my eye the president of the organization listen for a while, and then he clearly inserted himself in the conversation and said, Greg is trying to give you a rational reason for doing this. Let me tell you that as far as I'm concerned, and as long as you want to work in this organization, we will implement these initiatives. And there's was focused around increasing leadership with women. That clear-cut message that if you want to be a part of this organization, this is what you're going to do. Now, some people would say, what do you get from that kind of authoritarian? I mean, you get immediate compliance. And that's certainly some truth to that. But when you talk about what are some approaches to communicating? I think there is one that sometimes we overlook, and that is the power of the position, power of that leadership saying, this is what we're going to do. The other one that goes along with it is, what's the business case? And that's kind of been the perennial starting point. What's the business case for DEI? And to the degree the organization has a compelling business case Compelling might be in the sense of, uh, unless we do this, we're going to be out of business. Or compelling might be, you know, you can only squeeze so much percentage of growth out of a mature market. I think in complement to the business case has been the values case. So I do remember working with someone who was a CEO of a communications organization, and they were coming through this period of time when federal requirements about diversity were becoming a little more lax. And he said, Regardless of what the federal commission does, this is who we are. So I use that as an example of a value. So those companies articulated through that leader that says, this defines us. This is the nature of who we are. These are the values that we really represent. You know, the reason why we call ourselves Felicia and Company is defined by this. So we can't be who we want to be if we're not effectively pursuing something like the, uh, however they further define. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then that makes sense. I think the values is a perfect example of a, a starting point in order to help carry through what those initiatives might be. So how can leaders navigate the challenges and resistance that likely will arise when attempting to implement transformative DEI initiatives within their organizations. I'll probably go back again to what what we know and should accept as the power that goes along with the position. And part of that power, influence, and impact is to the degree the organization identifies with him or her or them. Right? Some of it's compliant just by because of your authority, you can fire me or you know otherwise negatively impact me. 
but some of it genuinely is I can relate to and connect with that senior leader. So I would put in this category in terms of driving it forward further, Felicia, is those senior leaders that really can tell a very personal, compelling story about their experience with diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it might be their personal story in the sense that I had this person working for me, they were doing a fabulous job along the way. And then I came to work one day and they said they were leaving. And, and I asked them why. And they said they never felt that I was really had an opportunity. So it suddenly dawned on me that something about them being different was interfering with their effectiveness and their future. So be able to tell that story has been my experience that when I didn't fully utilize all my resources, this is what happened. There's another version of that personalization that really sometimes I pulled out by saying, what's the earliest and most vivid memory you have of being different or when your difference made a difference? Sometimes people scratch their heads. People, last time I asked it, a couple of white guys, just to be real visual about it, they're sitting at the table scratching their head and saying, we can't come up with an example of when we were different. So that becomes a real challenge. Because I have, if I have no foundation, no experience at all about being perceived as different, however you want to define it in a moment, but different from a human standpoint, I moved from one neighborhood to the next neighborhood. My family, the parents were divorced, others weren't. I was in a classroom, I was the only blonde kid and everyone else was brunettes. Something, some early experience that you can relate to that says that I'm different and because of that difference, that impacted me. When I share that story with a, with a CEO or that question with a CEO, they said, well, you know, most people don't realize that I went to high school, this is a white male. Most people don't realize that I spent my high school years in Hawaii. And in Hawaii, they kept calling me a Howley. I didn't know what that meant, right? And so when someone finally told me, it essentially meant white guy. But that's enough of a connection for him to be able to tell a compelling story about someone put me in a category, gave me another label, to the degree that CEO can stand up and say, I don't know exactly what it's like being Black or Hispanic or Asian or female. I do remember when somebody put me in a category based on their surface reaction to me. And at least for me personally, that had me wondering, imagining. So it's not exactly what you say you might be going through. But let me tell you, I have a little bit of experience here. And I know it impacted me in this way. So when I've seen senior leaders tell those stories, it's become a real compelling way of the rest of the organization saying that she got it, he's got it. And they not only view this diversity initiative as a business or even as a values case, they view it as a personal case. And that really is modeling the rest of the organization, find your reference point that's going to make you personally appreciative of what we're trying to do and personally vested in some positive outcomes of it. And essentially that relatedness is helping leaders build trust. Sure. There's always an element of uh, interconnectedness, interrelationship, like you were saying, and trust. Sometimes we start off all those arguments based on logic. So when I appeal to your head, this is why we're going to downsize. This is why we have to lay off. This is why we're expanding. Here are the numbers that appeals to certain people and in certain ways of processing my excitement about change and my resistance to change. 
you took that simplistic model about resistance to change, it says I have to appeal to the head and to the heart. That's the personal, emotional, lived experience part of it. And it's also in that category of what's in it for me. You know, how will it impact me positively and negatively? And then the third one, head, heart. Third one is hands. Do I have the skill set to get this done? Do we have the resources to get this done? Will I have the support mechanisms to get this done? Will I have the tools and the processes to get this done? So it's beyond imagining and wishing and hoping and feeling. It's beyond all of that. It has to include technically what are we going to do? And I think that's where you get into a lot of, I think, some great examples over the years on what turns out to be a moving target. If we know we have a challenge about representation and we know from the beginning identifying people that would work here, just the simplicity of saying, where do we usually go shopping? If we usually go shopping in a fish market, we're not going to get beef. If we usually go shopping in this pool of uh, feeder schools, we know the profile we're going to get. So even without saying, let's do this from a defined affirmative action standpoint, even without saying that, just realizing process-wise, what advantage would we get if we went to a school in another city? What advantage would we get if we went to some less obvious schools? And certainly from the standpoint of talent wars and finding talent, if I go somewhere where no one else goes, then I might be the one that uncovers those gems. And if I see someone coming here that never comes here, thinking about those candidates, I might think, hmm, that's interesting. I think we've made some progress, particularly when you think about the processes that have been implemented, whether it's recruitment and selection and what it's like being Black or Hispanic or Asian or female. I do remember when somebody put me in a category based on their surface reaction to me. And at least for me personally, that had me wondering, imagining. So it's not exactly what you say you might be going through, but let me tell you, I have a little bit of experience here and I know it impacted me in this way. So when I've seen senior leaders tell those stories, it's become a real compelling way of the rest of the organization saying that she got it, he's got it. And they not only view this diversity initiative as a business or even as a values case, they view it as a personal case. And that really is modeling the rest of the organization, find your reference point that's going to make you personally appreciative of what we're trying to do and personally vested in some positive outcomes of it. And essentially that relatedness is helping leaders build trust. Sure. There's always an element of uh, interconnectedness, interrelationship, like you're saying, and trust. Sometimes we start off all those arguments based on logic. So when I appeal to your head, this is why we're going to downsize. This is why we have to lay off. This is why we're expanding. Here are the numbers. That appeals to certain people and in certain ways of processing my excitement about change and my resistance to change. We took that simplistic model about resistance to change. It says I have to appeal to the head and to the heart. That's the personal, emotional, lived experience part of it. And it's also in that category of what's in it for me. You know, how will it impact me positively and negatively? And then the third one, head, heart. Third one is hands. Do I have the skill set to get this done? Do we have the resources to get this done? Will I have the support mechanisms to get this done? 
people have the tools and the processes to get this done. So it's beyond imagining and wishing and hoping and feeling. It's beyond all of that and has to include technically what are we going to do? And I think that's where you get into a lot of, I think, some great examples over the years on what turns out to be a moving target. If we know we have a challenge about representation and we know from the beginning identifying people that would work here, just the simplicity of saying, where do we usually go shopping? If we usually go shopping in a fish market, we're not going to get beef. If we usually go shopping in this pool of uh, feeder schools, we know the profile they're going to get. So even without saying, let's do this from a defined affirmative action standpoint, even without saying that, just realizing process-wise, what advantage would we get if we went to a school in another city? What advantage would we get if we went to some less obvious schools? And certainly from the standpoint of talent wars and finding talent, if I go somewhere where no one else goes, then I might be the one that uncovers those gems. And if I see someone coming here that never comes here, thinking about those candidates, I might think, hmm, that's interesting. I think we've made some progress, particularly when you think about the processes that have been implemented, whether it's recruitment and selection and development and sourcing of businesses. We're not totally there yet. And if we look at different sources, not only will we potentially uncover some gems that others haven't uncovered, but it also just gives us a much more rich flow of choices that we react to. So can you provide insights into the potential benefits and advantages that organizations can experience by prioritizing diversity and inclusivity as highlighted in the research by Josh Burson and Gartner? Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things that people often talk about in terms of the benefits and it's insightful in one sense, and it also is in that category of we have reason to believe this anyway, so that the creativity that comes from diverse perspectives when we're tackling a problem that doesn't have an obvious solution. Right? So those problems that are pretty clear cut, but if you think about the transformative ones or the stuck ones, there's tons of research that would say diverse teams that are effectively managed. Right? So there's something about that leadership of the team that frames the problem and opportunity in a way that invites a variety of perspectives. We get the variety of people around a complex problem. Then we take advantage of those different perspectives, different orientations, and we may have this breakthrough idea about where do we want to go. That's one piece of insight. Another piece of insight that all of those that are in the employee engagement arena you know, really have some compelling data around. But an insight that I would underscore is that when people feel as though they're valued, when people feel as though they belong, when people feel as though they're connected to the mission and purpose of that organization, all the way down to a small team, that's when you get this phenomenal increase in how people use their discretionary effort. More concrete example, those companies that are paid still by the hour, when you've seen uh, employees say, I don't get paid for that, or, you know, I'm only working nine to five, or I'm doing exactly what my boss told me to do. When you move those persons to the point of, I have some value for you and I appreciate your perspective, your contribution, and I have this love of trust, even if you go at it in a different way than I am, those are the employees that feel as though 
I'm a part of this organization. I belong to this organization. And even if it goes past five o'clock, I have this commitment to getting this done. So that's a little bit more on that insight, like an aha piece to the degree people are invested in the organization and feeling as though they are valued. That's the other part about it, valued and their contributions are valued. You'll find this 30% increase, some people argue, in how they use that discretionary effort. I'm coming back to Felicia because I'm thinking that maybe we shouldn't go in this direction. And I know she's going to say, oh, you think things differently than I am. Let's, let's talk that through. Uh, so all that's a huge kind of an insightful piece. Um, and I do think that probably a library full of data that we really should give credit to the marketing departments, for instance. When you go that um, market segmentation, I understand from this population, this demographic, this zip code, people actually respond to this feature of our products differently than others. If you say that in an elegant way, you know, you really are putting yourself at risk to stereotyping and so forth. But there's some factual data in there that says that when I understand how women think, generalization, when I understand how um, first-generation schools um, students think, when I understand how important X dynamic is in the Latina community, then it might be just a little tiny twist on the products and services that we offer that makes a big difference. And when I say little tiny twist and um, measurable, but maybe in some ways small incremental change, trying to make substantial profits on 10% margin, for instance, you know, another 1% is huge amount of, you know, impact. And I go back to this financial wealth management group as an example, but just a little nuance of some research that they had actually done about what was the final decision that prospective clients made about coming to this firm or that firm. And relatively speaking, their Black potential customers ended up saying, um, well, I heard the numbers, but um, I'm going to trust you. I'm saying relative because it's not everyone, right? But relative and in some ways a visible contrast between population that was predominantly white males that would say, I like what you say about the numbers. The numbers make sense to me. I'm going to go with that. So just that little nuance of final decision based on compelling logic on the finances, final decision based on, and I trust what you said. And so the pitch changes just a little bit, right? Not totally, don't dismiss the logic because that population will trust you blindly. Don't dismiss the trust because if it's purely on numbers, then they'll go to the next set of numbers that you know are more compelling to them. But I would say that as one of those insights, there are some measurable differences, not absolute binary differences, but some measurable, in some ways subtle yet significant differences from one population to the next. And arguably having someone who has that perspective may say, I'm not sure how this segment of our customer base will respond to that. Maybe we want to change it a little bit. And ultimately increasing the bottom line. Ultimately increasing the bottom line. And as an enabler of the bottom line, yours is a trusted brand. Yours is one that actually listens to the customers, right? That keeps us in the mix. Knowing that this research and as you've shared your experiences, how can we take these instances or initiatives 
that we're doing with DEI and how can organizations effectively measure the impact and success of their DEI programs beyond the mere participation numbers or surface level indicators? If an organization was talking about what's the return we got on automating certain plant, it's been a lot of data looking at that and measuring it relative to DEI less. Now, certainly there's some traditional measurements in terms of increases in hiring and retention and engagement. You know, I don't know if we've done a much research on the uh, ascension of categories of differences in organizations, but that would be one piece of, um, you know, continued measurements. The whole measurement of place, of course, starts with what's the intended goal. So if we go back to what's the business case, that should be a real straight pull through you know, did we achieve what we set out to achieve? If we put it in the engagement, hiring, retention, we measure those things. If we put it into the values case and the image case, we probably get some measurements from the external customer base of that organization. So I think those are some real important pieces of it. You know, sometimes the richness of exit interviews, exit interviews in this population of diversity, I think is an underutilized research or measurement. Why do people leave? We find that people leave for these reasons. Now, I can hear, as I say, at HR and legal saying, ah, you know, what if we find out these things? But that's part of the riskiness of doing it. But that pull through of what are my objectives, what are the measurements that go along with it? I think if we somehow or another got a little bit more risk-taking from legal and HR, then we probably would ask even more questions and slice data even more. But we said engagement, is, which is a really valid measurement. Are we taking time to say, how are people responding in these different demographic categories? Because that data tells us something, and unfortunately may tell us some things that we're not doing well, which has some costs related to it. In, a, in an ideal world, and hopefully not idealistic one, those measurements gives us some indicators about where to go. So I work with a, a beverage company. They did some research about uh, perceptions about movement. They took a little bit of risk of slicing it. One of the things they uncovered was that, uh, generally speaking, that population thought they were improving the support of women, women's increases in leadership. Slice it another way, white males and seniors were more ecstatic about that improvement than women were, right? Lump it all together, looks like we're making movement. You know, pull it apart, you get this little nuance, certainly at least two different perspectives about perception. We're making some progress. Women still saying, yeah, but it's still taking a whole lot of effort for us to do that. Now we have some data we can use to move forward on it. I do think that's part of it. There's a piece, you know, in the general organization development and psychology arena from research standpoint that talks about qualitative research. And I think there's a great opportunity for that, even in corporations. Qualitative in the sense that you put a face to the facts, you can get some different kind of movement. Now, there's a snippet of a concrete example, organization, big manufacturing, global organization, they track diversity statistics over five years, saw this incremental increase, sort of in that range of we're making some progress, not a phenomenal leaps and bounds, but steady progress. So it's a little bit of a, there's no fire for us to do much different. I sat in on a conversation when they talked about well, we still, we've got a single digit improvement better than we were five years ago. And then this CEO asked about, well, who is leaving? Who, not numbers, but persons. 
So the conversation, Alicia, was so much more visceral to say that, you know, among the people that left, Joe left or Susan left. And then someone said, what? You mean that person? I thought they were doing what they were doing. So that, that visceral data, qualitative, face put on with the facts, it has a different impact on organizations, an additive impact on organizations, in addition to the factual stuff that's going through. And Greg, you've been doing this for so long. What example or case study of organizations that have successfully transformed their culture through effective DEI strategies, what example could you share that highlights the key factors that contributed to their success? I do think, and I'm going back to this global manufacturing organization, that part of their measurement was the defined diversity in what people talk now about the SEG, the sustainability, the environment, and the governance. And there's a huge piece of theirs was around minority suppliers, right? So if you pull out what they did around minority suppliers, the, the dollars that they spent, they were members of some significant round tables. So these are major organizations that direct this significant amount of dollars to small businesses, right? Now, the thing that I think stood out from them at the time was that that push about minority suppliers was a demonstration that we want to engage with other organizations as source. Theirs was interesting in that it had this really well-thought-out development piece. You're taking on fairly evolving, smaller companies, but that larger global manufacturing dedicated some resources to them in terms of how to build the business. And so it wasn't just paying some dollars so we can still be in the right category from terms of federal you know, oversight. And it wasn't just we can buy some uh, source supplier stuff from this organization. We want to build up that organization, quality-wise, which was a win-win for both of them. So I would say that is an example where that organization, they had some other pieces in terms of where that chief diversity officer said part of the senior executive group is size enough to really have that type of impact. But that, to me, is one of those real specific processes and on offerings that starts in the DEI arena, but gets a little bit more you know, elaborate in terms of how it's played out. I would also say, as a best case, with someone that I uh, think, and this person is the retiring CEO now of a professional services organization, not person of color, middle European heritage, lower income level, raised by grandparents because of the circumstances, all of which is to say that they didn't fit the predecessor's protocol of being more, quote unquote, privileged in their upbringing. So that person, that CEO, used their personal experience as a way, as I said earlier, driving the commitment they had and the experiences they had about being different. That person would also say when we talk about selection, our firm used to go to just these two or three places. Now we go multiple places because we're going to get more choices. That firm used to take extended view about people being matured over time to be valuable, you know, made it more specific and, and more of an expectation that senior consultants took in junior consultants. Didn't say take in minority consultants, but take junior consultants make sure that they are capable of adding value to your client as well. And then the third thing I would say is that CEO recognized that they were coming behind a couple of 
traditional CEOs, and that CEO I'm referring to will tell you, here are three or four specific challenging moments I had. I knew going into it with the board. I knew talking to my previous CEO. I knew talking to a customer. That notion, that experience of I took on some personal risk to demonstrate my commitment and demonstrate how I'm going to make this organization different. So that's another one that comes to mind with me, which is, again, all around, you and I started off talking about what's the power of that position? Regardless of demographic characteristics about that senior leader, they're sitting in a space where logic, don't throw it aside, business case, don't throw it aside. But there's some signature that that senior leaders put on this that has to be exercised in a responsible and impactful way. Greg, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for being here. Well, it's been my pleasure. I always enjoy talking with you. And, you know, it's, it's always, hopefully for me, these things are two-way streets. Hopefully I'm giving something and hopefully I'm getting something. And I really do genuinely appreciate just by asking questions. It makes me think. It makes me, you know, say, how do you put that in a way that I can offer it to others? But in the process of doing that, I just want to say to you and anybody listening, I have to learn, validate it for myself as I'm saying it out loud. So thank you for asking me to join you. That's Dr. Greg Pennington, Managing Partner of the Penpoint Consulting Group, former VP of HR and Senior Leadership Development for Johnson Controls and Harvard alumni. If you like today's podcast, we have more podcasts on innovative HR strategies, talent management, organizational culture, and more, and how to navigate the complexities of modern day HR. Find them at cpoplaybook.com slash podcasts or search CPO Playbook on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Thanks for listening to the CPO Playbook podcast. We'll be back with a new episode next time. I'm Felicia Shakiba. If you love CPO Playbook, the best thing you can do to support us is become a subscriber. You can do that at cpoplaybook.com slash podcast. That's cpoplaybook.com slash podcast. If there's an episode you loved, please share it with a friend. And if you have an idea you would like us to talk about or a guest you'd like to nominate, visit cpoplaybook.com slash contact us to suggest an idea.